Welcome back to Awakening Reformation, where Reformation awakens now. My name is Grant, and joined with me is my beautiful wife, Erica, the weaker vessel. Hello, everyone. Also joined with us is our friends, Scotty and Sandra Rollett. Hey, guys. Hello. If you would like to find out more about Awakening Reformation podcast, we are a part of the Rebel Alliance Media, so go to rebelalliancemedia.com. We have two other podcasts fathers of the faith for covenant kids and that is a podcast for kids the rebel podcast with p nate and poots comes out on wednesdays there's blogs and articles on the website go check it out follow us on social media and subscribe to the podcast so you get every update ever all the time when something new comes out and we are in the middle of a series called Bite Size Burkhoff, going through Louis Burkhoff's Manual of Christian Doctrine. Last week, we talked about the Trinity, and this week we get into the works of God section. And tonight, we're going to go through the divine decrees. In general. In general, it says. So what is a decree? The decree of God in his eternal plan or purpose in which he has foreordained all things to come to pass. It is but natural that God, who controls all things, should have a definite plan according to which he works, not only in creation and providence, but also in the process of redemption. This plan includes many particulars, and therefore we often speak of the divine decrees in the plural, though in reality there is but a single decree. For the material contents of his decree... God drew on the boundless knowledge which he has of all kinds of possible things. Of this great store of possibilities, he embodied in his decree only those things which actually come to pass. Their inclusion in the decree does not only mean that he himself will actively bring them into existence, but means in some cases that with the divine permission and according to the divine plan, they will certainly be brought to realization by his rational creatures. So let's pause there and uh, like unpack that a little bit. So when we're talking about the decrees, we're just talking about those purposes of God that he, like he said, drew on from his wisdom in order to make these decisions and to make these decrees of creating everything, how God was going to run the world, Mm -hmm. how humans were going to be created and function, how animals were going to be created and function, and how they were going to work in this ecosystem. And just He says also in redemption. Yeah, and then it would be how sinners would be saved Mm -hmm. and how humans would have communion with him. And all of that was decided before anything ever happened. Right. And that's what we're talking about with the decrees of God. He says, though we often talk about the decrees of God in a plural sense, Mm -hmm. it's actually a single decree. Like God just spoke something and it happened. Right. It wasn't like he sat and decreed, this is how, you know, molecular biology would work and this is how this would work. He just made one decree and that's how it came into being. Yeah. Yeah. The decree covers all the works of God in creation and redemption, and also embraces the actions of his free moral beings, not excluding their sinful actions. 
So what does that mean? Well, we'll get into that more. And that the tragedy that's happened in this world is not, it doesn't find its primary cause in God. Well, and also that when he spoke his decree, he had in mind his free moral beings and his decrees did not exclude their sinful actions. Right. Yep. It's a good Um, way to put it. But while the entrance of sin into the world and its various manifestations in the lives of angels and men were thus rendered certain, this does not mean that God decided to effectuate these himself. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? That's kind of like a big word, effectuate these things. That he didn't decide to put them into force or or into like operation himself. Right. Yeah, and he, like James chapter 1 talks about, he did not tempt Adam and Eve to sin and therefore they sinned. Mm-hmm. He's not the one that caused them in that sense to sin. Yeah. God's yeah he allowed sin, but he didn't create the sin. Yep. God's decree with reference to sin is a permissive decree. Mm-hmm. He permits sin. Yeah. That's usually the biggest hang up when it comes to decrees because People love that God decreed to save people before he ever created anybody. Mm-hmm. But the hiccup is when people start to think about God decreeing sin in the world before any of that happened. So the characteristics of the divine decree. The decree of God has several characteristics, and we're just going to talk through these characteristics really quick. So the first one that Berkhoff goes through is founded in in divine wisdom, and it basically is that um, things happen according to God's purpose, according to his counsel and his will. And we will not necessarily understand God's wisdom, though um, all things are formed through his plan and wisdom. All right, then you have divine decree uh, that it's eternal. This does not merely mean that the decree was formed before the beginning of time, but also that while it relates to things which come to pass, in the course of history, its formation is and remains an act within the divine being. Uh, so with it being part of the divine being makes it just as eternal as the being itself, the being being God. <laughs> <laughs> um, another characteristic is that his decrees are efficacious. And the fact that God has made a divine decree or divine plan, like Burkhoff says, does not mean that what he's decided to come to pass is going to happen by his act alone. He has still chosen to use means in accomplishing his decrees, but the fact that God is the one who has decreed it means that it certainly will come to pass. It is efficacious, though he does use means to accomplish that. Which is just a fancy word for it will have effect. Yeah, efficacious, exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, Number four, it is unchangeable. Man often changes his plans for various reasons. It may be that on second thought, he considers them unwise or that he is wanting and the power to carry them out. But neither the one nor the other is conceivable in God. He does not change his plan because he is faithful and true. God cannot change. So God's plans, therefore, cannot change. God's decrees are unchangeable. It's unconditional. Um, It's not dependent on anything outside of God. And that God has determined only what will come to pass, but also the conditions under which 
it will be realized. Uh, then we get into it is all comprehensive, uh, meaning that it includes the good actions of men, the wicked actions, and the contingent events. In Ephesians 2.10, uh, we are his workmanship created in Christ uh, Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so that he, you're not surprising him. Yeah. It's, uh, it's all been planned out. Yep. So with reference to sin in God's decrees, we say that it is permissive. And the decree of God, it renders the future sinful act absolutely certain, but it does not mean that God will, by his own act, bring it to pass. God decreed not to hinder the sinful act of the creature's self-determination, but nevertheless to regulate and control its result which we can see in the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's kind of a weighty thing. Break that down a little, like in a little bit more layman's terms. What does that mean? In God's decree to allow sin, he created man in such a way that he was able to sin or able not to sin. And that's obviously before the fall. Gotcha. And God decreed to not hinder his ability to sin. Gotcha. And even now that we're fallen in sin, God still directs the actions of sinful men. And we see this in bringing about the crucifixion of the Messiah. Because mm -hmm. those men are all culpable and responsible for the sins. And there was a judgment placed on them. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So objections to the doctrine of these decrees. So now that we've kind of discussed what God's decree is what his purposes and his decrees are, what its characteristics are. Um, we're just going to talk about what the common pushback against these would be. So outside of reform circles, the doctrine of the decrees meets with very little favor. <laughs> yeah. Meaning people don't like when we talk about the decrees of God very much. Yeah. Pretty um, much everyone doesn't like to talk about how God's in control, not them. Yeah. But one of the pushbacks is that it is declared to be inconsistent with the moral freedom of man. And he talks about like how Arminians push back against this. I mean, we can clearly see this is one of the biggest pushbacks that Arminians have with just reformed theology in general, yeah. but more specifically in the decrees of God. Yeah. And he even labels it the moral freedom of man, which is, which is lost really after the fall, right? So before the fall, the state of man was able to sin able to not sin, but after the fall, it's able to sin and unable to not sin. That's the fundamental misunderstanding that leads people to not like the decrees of God because they still think that man is a morally free agent. I've heard people talk about the morality of mankind prior to the fall. Mm -hmm. We were headed on a straight track and yeah. we could go to the left or to the right. After the fall, we're bent. Yep. off the track so yeah we can go forward we can choose to go forward and make a decision but it's always going to be the wrong decision because we're bent yep. we can only go off the track exactly that was actually i like um how burkhoff he says he referring to god he should determine the future actions of man in such a way as not to impinge on the moral freedom of man even if we do not fully understand how this can be done. Mm -hmm. Because everyone likes to just call God a big bully. Like he's just making everyone sin and they were just like puppets. Yeah. 
But that's not the case. No, just read your Bible. You see that God uses means and uses secondary causes to accomplish his decrees. And we are we are not God. And just like things have to be revealed to us by God, such as the Trinity, which we just you know talked about yeah. last episode, we're not fully going to understand everything. And this, this is just one of those things that we are not going to fully understand how this can be done. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, you look at the Israelites, how many times were they unfaithful and undeserving and they would backslide and then God would put them into the hands of their enemies. But was it the Israelites that chose to, to turn around? No, it was God put, putting them into captivity, taking that pride away, get them focused, and then they would they would turn back to him. It is said to rob men of all motives for seeking salvation. How many times as a Calvinist have you heard people say this to you, that if you're a Calvinist, then why should you even pray or even want anyone to be saved? Or why should you ever even make a decision to do anything good? Because you just believe God's going to do it all anyway. I say, if God doesn't decree things, then why do you pray anyway? Like, if God isn't in control and has a plan, then stop praying, you know? Well, and I just always say, it was, why wouldn't you want to think that he's in control? Yeah. I'm well, just saying, you know, I mean, I can do what he's told me to do and just trust that he's going to work it out. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of arrogant in a sense, you know, thinking that well, we we could do it better or we should be yeah, left up to make I, the decisions. I know better. Yeah. It, it's us putting him in a box and saying, okay... He can work within the confines of this box. Box with a big label called free will on it. (laughs) Because I I have control over that. Yeah. I would much rather believe that God's in control and I'm not. Because I'm just saying, I know how much I screw up my own life. I know the decisions that I make. And they're always ridiculous. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. The last pushback that he gives is that it makes God the author of sin. And I've heard this one several times, too, that if God predestines people before the foundations of the earth, which is actually what the Bible says, so, you know, they have an issue with just scripture. But if that's true, then it means that God authored people to act in rebellion against him. And then he's the author of sin. It just contradicts scripture, but affirming that God has decreed our entire world and how it works is in accordance with scripture. Several places, all over the place. Burkhoff has so many scriptural references throughout this chapter. So Yeah, we don't purposefully add all the scripture verses that he lists. Yeah. So if you're thinking like, well, where does he find this in scripture? Just pick up a copy of this book because... There's just so many scriptures here. It would take half the podcast for us to just list them all off to you. Yeah. So if you are led to thinking, well, then God is the author of sin. You've gone too far. You've gone beyond the bounds of scripture. Mm-hmm. Burkhoff says. Yep, over that clue. That's right. Burkhoff says, if God has decreed sin, he must be regarded as the author of sin. And yet this cannot be in view of the fact that he is holy that he himself forbids sin, and that scripture stresses his moral purity. It may be said, however, that the decree merely makes God the author of free moral beings who are themselves the author of sin. Similar to this accusation is the question, 
well, if God has, you know, decreed all this and God is good, why doesn't he remove the evil now? Why doesn't he remove sin from his creation? I'm sure you've all heard people say things like this before. And Doug Wilson said something really helpful in a sermon earlier this year. And he says, now, if you were telling the perfect story, would you remove the evil from it? Think for a moment. Would it have improved the Lord of the Rings if Tolkien had left out Sauron or Saruman or the Nazgul or Gollum? With the disappearance of each villain or antagonist, is the story getting progressively better or worse? And he quotes Acts 4, verse 26 to 28. It says, The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. God is the good author of the good story. God is the perfect author of the perfect story. God freely and unalterably ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And that's Westminster Confession of Faith. 3.1. He finishes and says, God is not the author of sin, but he most certainly is the author of a story that has sin in it. This is not a defect in the story, but is rather the glory of it. So clearly, if God makes all things for his glory, then including evil and sin in his grand story is so that he receives glory. We hope you enjoyed this bite-sized Bitter Burkhoff, and we pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened by the power of the Spirit. And until next time, get woke. Yeah. Let's start with the microphone check. One, two, first. Water to the dry and weary soul of the true church. The kind of things that few search. They say that the truth hurts. Well, this pain is gained, so let's explain the new birth. First things first, can't neglect this at the start. I must preface my remarks with the deadness of the heart from original sin, the effects of the fall. The sin of our first parents brought death to us all. Since Adam was our federal head, what he did counted for us. In him were all rebels and dead. Yo, captured in the mind, disaster, sin and crimes in a Dark state, Alaska in the winter time, sour in our frames. Left to ourselves, we be devoured in the flames. Cause we're powerless to change. If you feel that way, I pray that you respond happily. As you see what Jesus had to say in John chapter 3. That verse one is my thesis. It's the deepest truth that should get you speechless. What scripture teaches will fill in the missing pieces. Picture Jesus meeting up with Nicodemus. Perhaps it was fright about the other Pharisees' wicked spite against Christ that turned this into Nicked Night. He called the rabbi and gave him props. Said he was a teacher from God. Jesus replied, made him stop. Regarding the kingdom of God, no one's going in. In fact, you can't even see it unless you're born again. That must have consumed and stretched his mind. Cause he said, Can a man enter his mother?
mother's womb a second time? Naturalistically, the only way for him to hear it Jesus said you must be born of the water and the spirit No other way to enter heaven That sounds like Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27 In this new birth, the spirit is the source and the agent The water symbolizes spiritual purification Flesh can only produce flesh, that's true and factual Regenerating work of the spirit is supernatural It's kind of like the wind, which is free East to west can't perceive the steps You can only see its effects In the same way the Holy Spirit chooses who he pleases To sovereignly open their eyes to the truth of Jesus For the spirit's mysterious operation uh -huh. We will all be under serious condemnation I'd still be rejecting the sun If God hadn't said let there be light Like Genesis 1 yeah. And just like the light could not refuse to shine Irresistible grace has renewed my mind Let's exalt the king who died and truly is risen The new birth is not the effect of human decision But the cause It changes our natural habitation The situation It's a radical transformation I was cursed and polluted So my dirt was inexcusable With new internal Pupils, his person is beautiful, his worth is indisputable, the lamb is amazing, a standing ovation for his work in the crucible, so let us respond with true worship and love to the God who was given new birth from above.